Hello listeners, it's me, Edwina Throsby, the Head of Talks and Ideas at Sydney Opera House and the host of your podcast. One of the best parts of my job is getting to meet some of the world's most interesting and creative thinkers right here in our little studio under the sails. The team then turn these conversations into our podcast, It's a Long Story. But I'm here to let you know that we're moving these conversations over to our flagship Talks and Ideas podcast called Ideas at the House. So now you can listen to all of the latest recorded talks from the Opera House stages and studios here in the one place. To make sure you don't miss a single episode, please search Ideas at the House in your podcast app of choice and hit subscribe for all the interviews, panels and discussions that happen right here at the Sydney Opera House. I hope you like it. From the Sydney Opera House, this is Ideas at the House. Late in 2019, I interviewed Fintan O'Toole when he was here for Antidote Festival. Dublin born and bred, Fintan has written a twice-weekly column for the Irish Times since 1988. He has also written an astonishing 58 books about politics, poetry, philosophy, theatre and Irish culture. In short, he has a lot to say about a great many things, and our conversation was an absolute joy. I hope you think so too. Fintan O'Toole, welcome to the Sydney Opera House. Oh, thank you so much. It's such a joy to be here. Oh, it's extremely good to have you. You've been writing about British and Irish politics for decades now. What what sort of family were you born into? And so I I'm 61, uh, sadly. So I, I you know I grew up in the 1960s, really in in Dublin, sort of working class housing estate. You know, so my parents would have grown up in very much in that sort of old, like James Joyce's Dublin, you know, very much inner city. But it, it was overwhelmingly a Catholic world, you know, I mean, even even with all those kind of social disruptions going on. And what did that mean? It, it, well, it meant um, initially that you grew up in a, in a society that, that, even though it was actually economically quite backward and relatively poor, um, had a very profound sense of itself as, you know, being... Uh, special, <laughs> you know, the, the you weren't aware this as a kid, but the, all the compensations that tend to attach to poorer people were there, you know, which was a sense that um, we were, you know, the most Catholic country in the world. We were a beacon of Catholicism and, of, and therefore of the truth, you know, mm-hmm. to, to the rest of and the, the world and, and all mm-hmm. that stuff. Um, and in fact, of course, very repressive society in, in, in a lot of ways, you know, it was very corrupt, you know. This is not about religion. It's about power. And, mm-hmm. and this was an institution which had more power than any institution ever should have. Um, and, and it was both kind of temporal power. I mean, real power ran the education system. Every school I mm-hmm. went to was a Catholic school, ran the health service, had huge political influence. But also, of course, money, money yeah, and spiritual power as well. And, you know, you put, put, put all that together. It's just more power than anybody ever should have. Uh, so you were also very aware as a kid of child abuse, you know, of, of the terror it was quite a terrifying place, and what you know, do you mean the terror? Well, so so kids would disappear. You know, I, I mean, um, a kid on my road, you know, uh, Georgie Dunn just disappeared. You know, and and it was Letterfrack. And Letterfrack was a place in the west of Ireland. I mean, way out in Connemara. You know, as far away from Dublin as you could possibly go, which had a huge. Institution, called, you know, uh, uh, Christian Brothers, uh, whom I know also were kind of <laughs> in Australia, so people know what I'm talking about, ran this vast kind of bleak um, boys' home industrial school, they were called. 
for bad boys, you right. know. And he was a bad boy because he didn't turn up in school. He didn't go to school because he was poor. You know, he wasn't a bad kid. He, I, he was a friend of mine. He was a nice kid, you know, a lovely kid. I, and I think he might have stolen a bike at some point, you know. And I, I, I don't know what happened to him, but we, we know from, you know, reports and investigations and institutional work that's been done ever since that, you know, kids were, these were hellish places, absolutely hellish places. And we see the thing is, as kids, we knew they were hellish places. We, we, we knew the names and we knew that you were terrified of them, you know. Because, of course, that's what they were meant to be. It, yeah. was, it was social control. That was their point. I, I mean, it wouldn't have worked if we weren't terrified of them. And, uh, of course, later on as a journalist and, you know, working on these kind of things and people, everybody pretends that they were very shocked about all of this. And I can say, well, like, you know, when I was eight, I knew, I, I didn't know the detail of it, but, but we knew exactly that these were meant to be institutions of torture. So you had... It was a society in which, and people often don't believe me when I say this, but I mean, 1% of the entire population at any given time was locked up in a, in a non-judicial system, right? So I don't mean prisons. I mean industrial schools for children. 1% of all children were locked up in these institutions. Wow. 1% of all women were locked up in the, you know, Magdalene laundries, which right, have become yes. notorious. And then... Vast amounts of people were were locked away in mental institutions um, who were not mentally ill. You know, it was another form of social control. So you had this kind of big archipelago of repression, and it's it's a really interesting kind of society to grow up in because you as soon as you begin to come to consciousness, you know what you're against, um, and then you had to sort of find your way out of it somehow. And you say that as soon as you started reading and thinking, that was when you started going, well, hang on, this isn't fair and this isn't just. Um, you came from a family that really encouraged reading and thinking. Yeah, you know, so um, my both my parents were kind of working class autodidacts. I mean, they read books. You what know. did they do? So my mother w cleaned offices. You know, she was a cleaner. She, she got up um, at five in the morning and went in and, you know, cleaning the offices before people arrived. Um, and my father uh, was a bus conductor, uh, which is a, a profession which has disappeared. Um, so so they were they were people who had no formal education. Right? So, I mean, they, they both left school after primary school. Uh, and yet they were voracious readers. You know, my, my, my mother took us to the public library. And my, my dad was a great, um, you know, self-taught intellectual, really. He, he just read everything, you know. And and um, had a great great sense of the value of it, you know. I mean, really, it was a huge value placed on education, um, on the arts, you know. The other thing that was characteristic about the community that you grew up in was the way it looked after itself, the way that people looked after each other. Um, and there was a time uh, in your childhood where there was a strike, right? Mm, your father mm. had to go on strike for a long period of time. What happened in the community then? I, it's just something that never really left me, you know. I, 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 I just remember it vividly. You know, like most working class people don't have savings, you know. So so there was a nine-week strike. And so nine weeks without wages was a long time. There was five kids and, and you know, and my parents and my grandfather. So there were kind of eight of us depending on my father's wages. And, you know, my mother earned a little bit, but, you know, she, she was very badly paid as a, as a cleaner. Um, so... I, I just I just remember one morning as a kid, you know, get, get, get hearing a there's this little noise, you know, and and it was just an envelope coming in the in the door, you know, and it was just cash in the envelope, you know, and and it was just the neighbours, you know, but that it was just they the, hadn't signed it or left anything. No, and it was the just, way it was done, you know. Mm -hmm. So it, it wasn't just the money; it was the dignity of it, you know. It was the fact that you know there was no attempt to. 
you know, patronize anybody or make anybody feel small about this. You know, that sort of, as you say, we look after each other, you know, and, and people recognize trouble and, and, and these weren't people who didn't have money either, you know, so they were making some kind of sacrifice to, to do that. And, um, it's, it's stuff that I've never forgotten, you know, that sort of fundamental sense of social justice that most people have, you know, g given an opportunity, actually, <laughs> most people are generous and, 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 uh, we recognise each other's dignity, I think. Mm. At around this time as well, when you're sort of, you know, in your mid-teens, you became an atheist. Looking back, I think I, I stopped believing in God and started going to the theatre at the same time. You know? <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's in a way, it's not as strange as it might seem because... The great it's not strange power, at all. Well, the great power of the church was the ritual, you know. So... I don't think I ever really fully believed all the stuff, you know, the stories. But the the ritual was really powerful, and I, you know, I went back to the Latin Mass. I was an altar boy. I served the kind of solemn requiem Latin Mass once, you know. It was just magnificent. The candles and the smells and the costumes, you know, it was very, very camp and wonderful, you know. Um, and how, how, you know, how do you separate yourself from that is actually, in a way, more difficult than the intellectual questions. You know, once once you've started reading um, James Joyce and you know the, the sort of uh, the abstract si side of it is easy enough, but uh, you know, I I do remember going to theatre as a kind of substitute in a way where you 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 had I mean, theatre is just ritual, isn't it? You know, and it's a gathering of people and rituals, theatre, conversely, absolutely, mm -hmm. absolutely, and you, you you're you're coming together to try to find meaning, you know, in in some mysterious way and hoping it emerges, you know, and uh, so yeah, you know, I I. I I stopped going to mass when I was fourteen, and and it was you know around thirteen, fourteen. I started going to the theatre with my dad. And what did your mother do in this time? Did she? Did she was she... really upset, you know, and it was really hard, you know, and 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 she was a great woman actually because, you see, if you sincerely believe that your kids are going to go to hell, um, it's pretty hard, you know. It, it, I mean, it's the worst thing can happen, you know, isn't it? I mean, because it's forever. Um, so. I went to college. It was kind of the first of their family ever to go to university, and and uh, they were delighted with that. You know, it was really meant a lot to them, but also kind of a bit of a worry for my mother about you know what, what kind of world are we going into. And then my 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 girlfriends and I started living together. You know, we lived together for four years, and then we decided to get married. But we were not going to get married in the church. And this was, you know, first of all, my my girlfriend could could have got fired because she taught in school, and the only schools you could teach in were was Catholic schools. Um, so did she have to keep the fact that you were yeah. living together well, a secret from uh, her employers? Or? Yes, absolutely. Mm. Absolutely. And particularly that we were getting, funny enough that we were getting married was worse, you know. So to be living together, you couldn't prove that anything was going on, you know. But if you were married outside the church, in the church size, you were not married. and you, But you were also declaring that you were in a sexual relationship. And that was so. Uh, and teachers were fired. I mean, you know, this wasn't abstract. I mean, this, this, this sort of stuff was happening. And this is in the, what, 1980s? This is in the 1980s, That's early 1980s. really quite yeah. recent. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you have to remember that that you know, like you know, when I started having sex, I mean, contraception was illegal. Wow, you know, how I did mean, you get it, or did you just not? Well, so in the students' unions would would we would import condoms, you know, from England. Yeah, mm. uh, and we had a condom machine. I remember, and like the, the the university authorities came and seized our condom machine. You know, I mean, this sort of stuff. You know, it really was that bad. Divorce was illegal. Uh, divorce was actually not just illegal, but unconstitutional. You know. Abortion was entirely illegal. Uh, you know, so you had all that sort of stuff. But um, 
so when we decided to get married, we said we're going to get married in registry office. And at that time, it was like my mother would only have heard of registry office like Richard Burton, Elizabeth Taylor, you know, those kinds of people, you know, <laughs> and you know, and you know, you knew they'd be divorced in another year and they'd have some, you know, you know, uh, and so. Her courage in coming to the wedding, I thought, was actually just beautiful. You know, I, I really admired her for it. it, it you, you, you have to, it's, it's actually also teaches you a lot as because as a kid you get very arrogant. You think I know the truth and you don't, and you know I'm, I'm, you know, highly educated and you're not, and you've all that stuff. You know, and actually to realize, you know what, um, I'm not sure. I would be as mature as she's being right now. You know, if the situation were reverse, you know, where. If your kids wanted to get married in a full mess, well, or, uh, you know, if they were doing, yeah, or if they were doing something that I profoundly disagreed with and felt was going to ruin their entire, not just their lives, but their afterlives, their eternal souls. Yeah, you know, I, I don't know if I would be as 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 mature and as generous as that. You know, I think I, I don't want to be sort of overly prescriptive, but I, I think working class communities are sort of by virtue of being. Poor, they're they're more used to having to adapt to right. stuff. You know, they don't and feel they have a huge amount of, of power over a lot of these things. And you know, I remember years years later, I'd been teaching in Princeton, and I, I was coming home for the uh, referendum on same sex marriage, which you know Ireland was the first place in the world to have same sex marriage by referendum, by popular mm -hmm. vote. You know, a few years ago, and uh, I, I was, I, I you know. Just arrived back, and I went straight over to see my dad. And my mother had died at this stage, and um, you know, my, my dad was very liberal-minded and open-minded. But I thought, you know, homosexuality, all that. You know, I don't know how he would feel. But he was very, he was very masculine. Like he was a boxer, and he, you know, he he was a very masculine sort of man in that old sense. And I thought, I wondered how he would feel about this. You know, and I said to him, you know, I said, how do you think the because you don't, you know, you don't have the courage to say how are you going to vote, but you say how do you think it's going to go? You know, and he said. That's a stupid question. You know, I thought, Jesus, he's really kind of, you know, I didn't know he was so, you know, upset about this. <laughs> I said, why is it because? I said, well, of course everybody's voting for a second. I mean, why wouldn't you vote for that? I mean, don't be so stupid. Like, you know, it was like, I mean, you know, everybody around here is voting for same-sex marriage. And I realized they, you know, they were. And it was, it was really interesting to see, because the, the assumption was like, you know, working class areas would be less liberal-minded than, than middle class areas. And actually, you realized, you know, every working class family you know, has adjusted to all sorts of stuff, you know, with, with, uh, you know, relationships of different kinds, um, you know, and, and, and they actually mostly been incredibly good at just identifying the core of it, which is, you know what, if we love each other and support each other and, and, you know, tr try to get along together, everything will be okay. You know? Seeing the humanity. Yeah. Yeah. Mm. yeah. So, you know, I, 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 I'm very, I'm very glad to have that, sort of uh, those lessons and that sort of experience, I think. You said that you, you were the first in your family and in your street to go to university. How did that come about? None of my, none of my other siblings went to university and, you know, they, they did other jobs and were actually probably better off. You know, Was that ways. because they weren't, uh, weren't interested or because they uh, had other passions? Or no I think it was, it was still not... It just wasn't the thing you did, really. You know, so so it was very much a thing about uh, economically. I suppose you you were really anxious to start earning some money. You know, you you wanted to as soon as you left school, you just get a get a job. You know, and so that's really what they did. Um, whereas I always wanted to go. I I always had a sense that um, you know, 
Uh, and of course, I was in awe of the idea of it. I mean, it was very disappointing, you know, to sort of realize that. <laughs> I was going to oh, ask you, you know, what did you think of it when you were just arrived? very ordinary people. You know, yeah. I, you, you everybody's going to be like, you know, discussing in Act Five, Scene Three of Hamlet. You know, <laughs> and, you know, and, you know, and, or Heidegger, and you know, but uh, the rest, of most people are just drinking and you know, and, and playing football and whatever. You know, <laughs> so, uh, so it, it's kind of disappointing in a way, um, and. Uh, <laughs> Yeah, your courses are important and yeah, and hope you'll do the reading and all the rest of it. But, you know, mostly it's about the time you have. You're never going to have a time in your life like this ever again, you know, where you've got three or four years and you've got these friends and you've got a chance to, you know, do crazy things and you've some safety around that, you know. What crazy things did you do? Mostly politics, you know, mostly um, politics and, and journalism, you know. So so I was very involved in in, in student politics and uh, and also, you know, I'd been editing a school newspaper and so I was doing the same thing in, in the university. I, I I value that hugely. I think, you know, that's where you learn so much, isn't it? You know, just... And I mean, it sounds like too, because I mean, you didn't study journalism, you studied theatre, um, but it sounds like you learnt to be a journalist. Yeah, I mean... And what was important perhaps about being a journalist? You learn how to write, you know, uh, that, that publishing stuff, however bad it is. I mean, I, you know, I'm I'm a bit sceptical about the proliferation of journalism schools, you know, mm. and I'm not at all saying some people find them great and get, you know, terrific skills out of them. Um, uh, but but I, I, I think journalism may have become more exclusive now than it was in my time. Well, I mean, know? it used to be a trade. And, and when I started as a yeah. journalist, I was one yeah. of the few in the newsroom that yeah. had a degree. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, it was something that... Now, again, I'm not romanticising that. And I don't know what it was like for you in, in Australia. I know certainly in Ireland it was very sexist. I mean, so... Mm. so oh, it was sexist. Part of the thing about the trade, of course, was that it was treated like a, any other, like being a carpenter or an electrician, which were all, of course, male domains. So, uh, you know, I, 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 I don't want to romanticise it in that sense. But in class terms, it was certainly a lot more accessible. And when you get to a point where you have to have a primary degree and then a secondary degree in order to become a journalist... And then you have to start out with the idea that you're not going to earn any money. Yeah, for, you're going to have to intern for the first, you know, however long. God knows how long. Mm. It's getting longer and longer and worse and worse and more and more exploitative. Mm -hmm. uh, you end up with the position that it's people like me who were kind of coming into it with no resources, you know, um, and just making your way. I think it's 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 much harder for, for that to happen. You have spoken a lot about the... Um, about how you were motivated to become a journalist by a sense of social justice and a sense of wanting political a political voice. Yeah, you know, um, uh, you know. I suppose it took me a while to figure out the difference between um, objectivity and neutrality. You know, um, mm. journalism is a trade and is a skill, and and I would even. You know, dare to call it a profession in the in the proper sense that profession. What does a profession mean? Profession means you're accountable. You know, you 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 set yourself certain standards and you you accept that you should be accountable to those standards. And one of the one of those standards is is objectivity. You know, that you in in the way that you try to do it, you at least try to use evidence. Um, uh, but that's not the same as neutrality. You know, I I I still find it quite hard to understand why anybody wants to be in the business of writing and communicating uh, if they don't want to make things better you know mm. <laughs> and and i think if you're not there to open up public space for 
yourself, I suppose, your first, you know, let's, you know, let's be honest, you are, of course, doing that, but also, you know, using your own entry into it to open it up for other people and, and to try to hold and articulate certain values, um, which are those kind of democratic values of, of, of equality and dignity. <laughs> it's interesting, though. I think, you know, when, when you're talking about sort of neutrality and objectivity, I think that's an important distinction because I think one of the things that is happening, and it's quite generational, um, I mm. think that, that the line between journalist or media communicator, if you like, and activist is blurring, yeah. um, particularly around yeah. climate, um, but, yeah. but, but in other areas as well. And, and I wonder, as you know, somebody who came up um, you know, in the old school, if you like, yeah. uh, what you think about that. You know, I I I have enormous sympathy um, in in the sense that only a minority of people who are going into journalism are are going to get jobs in the old sense, and those jobs themselves are probably going to be increasingly unstable and uncertain. Uh, and it's very important that there are jobs. Right? I mean, I'm, I'm old fashioned enough to say. You need institutions, you know, uh, however bad you think things are, if you strip away whatever institutions we've got left, they'll be an awful lot worse. Um, but it, it, there are going to be increasing numbers of people outside of those institutions who are trying to do what, you know, what we call journalism and however they define that. Um, and good journalists have always been, you know, activists in a sure. sense, you know, they might cover it up sometimes with 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 the fact that they've got these institutional um, positions, you know, and and in the kind of journalism I now do, which is opinion journalism, right? The the, the a word I really hate, you know, is contrarian, you know, mm. which has kind of been validated as an idea, you know, that your job is to be whatever the orthodoxy is, your job is to go against it and, you know, to to provoke. And I hate that idea. I absolutely hate it because you know some things are are, are you should be against, and some things you bloody well shouldn't. You know, uh, you know there are values, there are facts, there is evidence, there is reality. You know, and and uh, I think the job is somehow to 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 stick as close as you possibly can to the idea of objectivity and professionalism and standards. You know, if you say something and you present it as a fact. It, it should be rooted in evidence. It should at least be consistent with the evidence, right? Uh, and and therefore, opinion should always come back to some kind of statement about reality, which is which is falsifiable. Somebody else can check it and say that's actually not true. It's the only thing that holds you to account. There's a line, though, isn't there? I mean, you worked as a um, as a theatre critic through throughout the 1980s, yeah. and then joined the Irish Times in 1988 as a columnist, and you've been writing columns for that paper ever since. And I think that, you know, when you think about the difference between writing, you know, being a columnist based or an op-ed journalist rather than a a, a reporting journalist, there's a really great role, I think, for op-ed journalists. And particularly if you're reporting or you're writing your columns informed by a factual understanding. But I do think that we have seen in sort of broad journalism, certainly in the Anglosphere in the last decade, um, uh, a huge increase in the number of op editors. Um, they're cheaper, yeah. you know. They don't. You don't have to actually fund great big investigations. Um, they 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 do well online. You know, there are all yeah. of these kinds of factors. As, as as sort of somebody that's that's kind of you know superficially part of that machine, what do you think about that that 
sort of trend towards opinion over over reported news? Yeah, there's too much of it. Uh, you know, it, it, I, I, I completely agree with the way you framed it. You know, it, it's 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 about proportion, you know. Um, I suppose I would say, wouldn't I, that there is an important role for 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 op-ed writing. You know, I mean, you do need people to try to frame the evidence in 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 an argument. You know, which is part of a mm. democratic conversation. Uh, and and you know, I, I would defend the, the role. Um, but you're absolutely right. I mean, there's the huge proliferation of it. You know, when I started doing it, there was you know. Like the Irish Times had one column a day, you know, and and now it has maybe four or five, you know, um, and and it's it's in every area. Of course, now it's not just in 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 politics, you know, it's in it's in uh, sport and and the arts. And everything is is sort of framed around opinion, but it it has a profound political effect, you know, because what's happened, of course, is that you know we're now electing people who are who are who are contrarians you know who are essentially op-ed columnists you know right. <laughs> um but but of the worst kind you know who 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 uh who who get the get the hits you know the, by by saying the most outrageous things and and the the inbuilt bias of outrage is that it's always easier to generate outrage by picking on people who are weaker than yourself you know you know if as a journalist you're not in some kind of danger, if there's not something at stake, you know, if, if you're not taking on people who are more powerful than yourself, then you're just playing a game, you know, you're you're and and it it, it can often be a pretty obnoxious game, you know, where where if if you stick to trying to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable, then I think that's where some kind of balance of truth lies. Mm. You said earlier that you um, stopped believing in God at around the same time as you started going to the theatre. And then you moved from, you know, studying theatre into journalism um, and political journalism. What do you think is the relationship between theatre and politics? I think it's very, very close, isn't it? I mean, I think, first of all, theatre itself is innately political, you know, and, and I don't mean political in the sort of large P party sense, but, you know, it's a it's a, it's a public art form. Um, and that's one of the things that always attracted me to it. So I think, first of all, going to the theatre is a great training for being a citizen because it's it it's the place in which you have to be forced to confront, first of all, people that you don't know, that you may not like and that you don't understand how they think. And by the end of it, you, 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 you have entered into their lives. And if we can't enter into each other's lives, we can't be citizens. You know? I mean, it's not accidental that the Greeks had the theatre right beside the, the, the place of political deliberation. You know, they were intertwined because one is a training for the other. So there's that, I think, is, 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 is very powerful. But of course... It's also worked the other way around, and and maybe not in as healthy a way, you know. So I think the the political nature of theatre is very is very uh, healthy. The, the theatricalization of politics is not. I mean, Walter Benjamin said, you know, fascism is the aestheticization of politics, you know, and that's that's what it is. And 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 of course, we're you could say it's actually the the bad art, you know. It's it's the stuff that in art would not be tolerated. You know the cliche, the mm, stereotype, not believed, yeah. the the you know the the crudity um, is is coming to dominate our politics, and and it's highly theatrical. You know, um, uh, it, we're in a very strange moment, aren't we? Where it's not just I mean, fascism always was theatrical and was playing. 
but it's now sort of very in your face the way it's playing. You know, I mean, the, the, I mean, the fact that Trump does his stuff on Twitter every morning, you know, and and it's so obvious what he's doing. You know, so there's no there's no there's no hidden strings being mm. pulled here. You know, he's saying, "Here's a bone, go and follow it." You know, when everybody he's got a very receptive it. audience, uh, absolutely. And you someone like Boris Johnson, you know, who's made his whole career out of being a clown. And, you know, when I say he's, he's a clown, people say, oh, that's not true. He's a very intelligent man. But clowns are very intelligent. I was going to you know? say that I mean, the two are not You know, and it has, uh, you know, very cleverly constructed this world. Because, of course, what, what making politics theatrical does for you is then truth doesn't matter. Right? Reality doesn't matter. So so what you say is, and Johnson is a master of this, you know, if, if, if he is caught telling a lie, he says it was just a joke, mm. you know. Uh, but it's a joke that has really serious consequences because it's aimed at people and it's aimed at stuff happening. It makes change. And it's it's about kind of allowing certain interests to take control of our democratic systems. Well, jokes made by the very powerful are different from jokes that are made by people with no power at all. Absolutely. Mm. So the other thing that your interest in politics did was quite literally introduce you to your wife. And you're also the parents of, of two grown sons. Yeah. How did fatherhood affect you? How did that come to you? You know, very, very profoundly, um, it's a very simple thing and it's kind of taken for granted, you know, but I was probably the first generation of men, certainly in Ireland and, and I think in, you know, probably more, more broadly, who were present at the birth of their children, you know, like, that's, you know, like my, my father being, you know, at the birth. I mean, they might have been outside, you know, but, but you know, Birth itself was a secret world women's of business. women, and it was mm. women's business. And you know, being there for your partner is incredibly important for your relationship. And and but also, it's just a miracle. You know, it's just nothing like it, is there? You know, I mean, just being there for it. And you know, I I, I took fatherhood very seriously. You know, I I I I think, I mean, my parents didn't have a lot of choices about whether they had kids or not. You know, if they were going to have a relationship, they had kids. You know. So, so we were also the first generation who felt, you know, actually, this is our fault. <laughs> like we, we've, we've made this decision. You know, we'd lived together for years before we had, before we had kids. So it, it, again, most people now would take that completely for granted. But I think the thing of saying, you know, we can't complain about this. We can't, you know. That this I is, chose this. We chose to do mm. this. And if you've chosen to do it, then, then you have a huge responsibility to it. And the more we know about the early years, uh, I mean, the more wonderful it, I mean, the more astonishingly just breathtaking it is, you know, of, of what, what, how, how great it can be for kids <laughs> and, and how awful it is when we don't do what we can do for those kids. I mean, your father worked so hard um, and you've said that you felt resentful at various points in your own childhood that he was just absent a lot because he was at work all the time. Yeah. Did that affect the way that you were a father? You know, I again, I, I think I learned a lot from him because, as you say, he 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 worked incredibly hard because he just needed the money. You know, and the job was awful. He hated being a bus conductor. He didn't, he didn't get any pleasure out of it at all. You know, it was, it was there was nothing for him in it. You know, it just awful hours, and it was shift work as well, which was terrible. You know, so he'd often, you know, he'd do part of the shift, he'd be up at five, and then he'd be home at twelve, and then he'd be out again at two, and then, you know, it was all that kind of stuff. Um, but I, I, I realized as I grew older, you know, so when we were little, we kind of, oh, you know, why is he not there? And then, and then you, I was like, so he had so little time and he spent it with us, you know. He was a bird watcher, you know. His, the way he kept sane was bird watching. And, and he loved this, he loved solitary, you know, sexually. He was a kind of solitary man. He loved the business of just going out and 
and looking at birds, you know. But he would take us with him, you know, and and you know, I I I'm so grateful for that. You know, I, I just um, I, a, po a poet in Dublin once said to me, I, I was mad, you know, Brendan Canelli, who was a wonderful poet, and uh, we were talking about bird watching someone, and and I said my father's a bird watcher, and Brendan said, you know, that must be great. And I said, why? And he said, because it's about paying attention, isn't it? <laughs> and of course it is. Bird watching is about paying attention, and he was very good at paying attention, you know. And and um, I think you learn a lot from that, you know. That that's what does a kid want? They want your attention, you know. They they want you to focus on them. Do you feel getting old? Um, I do feel I'm getting old. Yeah, you know. Um, I suppose partly because I've been I've been doing this stuff for a long time, um, uh, and. Um, my running is getting worse. You know, the, the, the running is kind of, I, I, I run most days, but it's, it's sort of very merciless, you know, because you, you, can, you can time your age. <laughs> it just <laughs> drops off, you know. <laughs> and yeah, of course, you know, um, Baldy and all the rest of it, you know, all that stuff. Um, but but um, the, the great privilege of being older is you care less, you know. Um, what's the worst that can happen to me now? You know, if I die tomorrow, you know, I've had a good life, and you know, it's a, um, and you, because you care less, I think you just have more confidence. You know, I, uh, you know, I, I look back on my younger self, and you just think about that. Was, you know, most of us, you're so full of anxiety all the time. You know, about who you are and proving yourself and fitting in with people or not fitting in, or you know, what are you supposed to do? Um, and I mean, old people can become very cantankerous, and they can go way too far in this process, you know. But <laughs> but but there is there is something lovely about maybe a happy medium whereby you're still kind of functioning as a social being, but you're not really trying to impress people that much, you know. It, it doesn't mean you slacken your standards. You hope you've internalized those standards enough that you you at least meet some kind of bar. Uh, but I think you write better if you're if you're. Um, able to enjoy the process a little bit more. I think I enjoy writing a lot more now than I than I did 30 years ago, you know. Uh, uh, so there are, there really are compensations to getting old. Well, may you continue enjoying it for decades more to come, Fintan. It's been such a pleasure talking to you. Thank for you so too. much for coming in. Thank you. Fintan O'Toole appeared at the Sydney Opera House alongside Guri writer Melissa Lukashenko and Holocaust historian Deborah Lipstadt for a fascinating discussion about the idea of national identity. You can find a link to that session in our show notes. And next week on Ideas at the House, I speak to the writer Michael Pollan as he takes on the taboo topic of psychedelic drugs. I'm your host, Edwina Throsby, and I'll catch you then.